This episode of Serverless Chats is brought to you by New Relic and Epsigon. This week, I chat with Holly Mesrovian about serverless transformation at AWS. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 65. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm chatting with Holly Mesrobian. Hey, Holly, thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you for inviting me. So you are the Director of Engineering for AWS Lambda at Amazon Web Services. Uh, so why don't you tell the listeners a bit about your background and what the Director of uh, Engineering for AWS Lambda does? Absolutely. So uh, engineering leaders in Amazon are very technical and uh, I think I fit, I fit in that uh, class of leader. I've been in engineering for more than 25 years. Uh, the first decade that I was in, uh, I was actually an, an engineer. And then the last 15 years or so, I've been leading uh, large scale engineering organizations that are also responsible for 24 seven operations. So you think about those, they're called DevOps organizations. And so that's what I've been doing um, for for quite a while now, and uh, the Lambda Engineering Organization is uh, just like that. In terms of my background and how did I get here, so I I have uh, two graduate degrees, computer science and software engineering, and as I re referenced, lots of uh, time uh, designing and building uh, systems. And one of the things that's really great about AWS and uh, leading the teams here, I referenced kind of that DevOps culture uh, my teams, they they build it, they run it, and they have really great um, best practices around engineering excellence and operational uh, efficiency. And you know, if we have an issue in one of our production environments, my teams are on it, and we have uh, great processes around how how we do that. We have a really well established COE. So anytime there's a customer impacting issue that happens in one of our production environments, my teams write. Uh, COE is which it means correction of errors. And we review it as an engineering team every week. So I sit down with my teams, we go through operational dashboards, we inspect our metrics, we look at how we're doing across availability, latency, scale, we have ongoing scaling targets and scale testing. And we're constantly inspecting how are we running this service, not just how we're building it and how we're building new features, but how we're running it. And we run game days as well. Um, so that we try to we try to break our systems and uh, and then see that my team all my on calls can uh, recover those systems and one of the things that I really like is we put new people in the team on those game days because we're better for them to learn than we've intentionally broken the system get in there and figure out if you can fix it before it's actually fixing something in production and so uh, so that that's really great about Amazon. And then I would say the other great thing about kind of Amazon and Amazon engineering and, and the teams that I have, um, I just love how, what a high caliber they, they are and how um, you know invested uh, the members of the team are and how hard they will they will work to try to make um, the best service for our customers. Awesome. 
Well, listen, I am a huge fan of AWS Lambda, and I love what you do. I love what your team is doing, and everything that uh, Amazon is doing for serverless is just amazing. Um, and so one of the things, though, that I'd love to talk to you about today, and we could get into the specifics of Lambda itself and how everything works, but you have a couple of great talks. Uh, you and Mark Brooker um, did these talks at reInvent uh, in 2018 and 2019. Um, these, you know, the the uh, uh, getting into the details of Lambda, Lambda under the hood, right? And great talk. So if anybody wants to know exactly how Lambda functions work and how all that stuff uh, works under the hood, um, definitely go check those out. I will put those in the show notes. Um, so what I what I'd really like to talk to you about today um, is just this idea of serverless, sort of serverless adoption. Option or, or serverless transformation, because I know AWS talks a lot about how all their internal tools are going serverless, right? Um, which is pretty cool. Um, and of course, you know, there's the external stuff too. There's a lot of adoption from enterprises and small businesses and medium-sized businesses and things like that. Um, but I would love to know sort of the mindset internally, right? Like, how does AWS take um, serverless or look at serverless and look at Lambda um, and use that to sort of build their internal processes. And like, what is the, what's the learning on that? How do you keep learning and, and just keep building with serverless? Yeah, so um, this is a really fun topic for me to talk about. And as you might imagine, customers find value in the agility and the, uh, the operational load or the lighter load on operations that serverless brings. My teams are no different, nor are AWS teams or Amazon teams. So what we have seen over time is teams across AWS adopt and, and use serverless. And then my own teams over time have also adopted uh, the serverless architecture, and they actually want to use it. And so over time, more and more of uh, the Lambda service, in particular on the control plane, because you don't want circular dependencies in your architecture. So we're really careful about making sure that in early design, when we're saying, hey, my team wants to use Lambda, is it okay to use Lambda and serverless because it's building serverless underneath serverless and you have to be careful that you're not uh, <laughs> doing a bad thing but we're, we're really good about inspecting that in kind of the early design phases and i've seen more and more of my teams picking up and building um control planes on lambda and in particular they're using that the feature that we launched uh, last year at reinvent called provision concurrency and what that does for really high scale low latency services is it gets rid of um, what people have typically talked about, which is cold starts. And of course, we've done a ton of work um, over the years to reduce cold starts, but they're still not zero. And um, we're going to continue to do work on, on cold starts. Um, but for customers who are super latency sensitive and, and need that scale and know, know that they have low latency all the time, provision concurrency is a great solution. And we have used it within our own um, services as well. Right. So is that something now where like all AWS teams, when they're thinking about building a new service, that they're going to build that on top of Lambda and do that serverlessly? Yeah, one of the ways that um, people look at it is, you know, um, it, it, it's the, kind of that, that operational model and where are you sitting in that. And of course, Lambda is pretty high. We do a lot more of the shared responsibility on behalf of customers. And so 
uh, teams like that and they say, oh, well, this is going to be easier to operate. We're going to get more agility out of it. So let's go there as a first stop. And it's only when they kind of say, well, maybe maybe this isn't going to work for us that they kind of go to the next um, potential option or an option after that. And so I, like, like I was talking about earlier, I see my own teams doing that same evaluation and, and we're increasingly using Lambda to build uh, portions of our service. Right, right. Yeah. So, so another thing um, and I think that maybe we don't always think about or maybe people don't always connect these dots, but you can't run serverless in a vacuum, right? Like you can't say, hey, I'm just gonna build everything on Lambda or I'm just gonna build everything on DynamoDB. Like you have to talk and interact with a number of different services in order to make that happen, right? And so uh, you think about some of the recent launches. So V2N, um, provision concurrency, EFS for Lambda, right? Like these are services that Lambda has to use in order to, uh, to to handle some of these use cases. And because Lambda really pushes the boundaries of these services, you end up making these services better, right? Absolutely. Uh, so to your point, uh, Lambda stitches together a ton of AWS services. And I, I kind of think about it as, as you know, kind of Lambda is a lot of the glue between AWS services. And in a number of the features that we've built, and you, you referenced uh, V2N and EFS, both of those um, services, we worked very closely with the teams and they're, 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 you can think about them as joint projects, like at a project team level, we're, we're in the room with the leadership from both of those teams every week talking about you know, any issues that we're seeing or, or how the project is progressing. Right. And in the process, you know, we, we make those products better and the products uh, become better products. And so you know, one great example is on EFS, uh, because of Lambda's unique performance characteristics, the the scale, the instantaneous burst, we drove um, EFS to deliver higher burst capability from 1K to 25K. And, and so the product becomes better for everyone, not just Lambda customers, but or serverless customers, but all, uh, all customers in the process of doing that. Right. And we also do lots of, um, you know, kind of joint collaboration and work uh, to make sure that those services are, you know, operating at that level as well. And, and so we spent a lot of time in the development cycle uh, ensuring that the, the products worked really well together. Right. And that's one thing that I'm kind of curious about in terms of like, what is the serverless vision for AWS, right? Or at least from your perspective, from the Lambda team, um, you know, with all of these new like launches, all these things that have come out. I mean, this has solved a bunch of new use cases or have opened up a bunch of new use cases, right? So, I mean, with EFS, uh, you know, you get the ability to do maybe ML, for example. You've got the uh, SAM CLI that just went GA. You've got RDS proxy, um, you know, that just went GA to help solve, you know, the connection, uh, the connection pooling issue. You've got savings plans. You've got provision concurrency, all these things we mentioned. Um, so is that something where, um, you know, you're pushing or Lambda is pushing the other teams um, to help you solve these use cases so that, you know, that, that more internal teams as well as customers can start using serverless? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, in, in Lambda, as you referenced, we have continued to work to uh, drive increased uh, adoption and remove barriers for specific use cases. And so, you know, kind of rolling back all the way to uh, a couple of years ago, we launched uh, Firecracker, which made our service 
faster and helped reduce cold starts. We then launched V2N, which brought that capability and lower latency to uh, networking, our VPC networking. Then we launched provision concurrency because we were hearing from customers that that, that they needed that, that low latency all the time. And, you know, you kind of roll forwards. Uh, We just launched in June EFS and EFS is really designed to help make sure that customers who haven't been able to bring their really big data intensive workloads that they've been wanting to bring to the the simplicity of Lambda to Lambda. And if you think about it, you know, EFS, the kind of the workloads like um, bring a model and run run something on that model or bring big data and do big data transformations that you can do this really simply with Lambda. The data is there and um, you can do it when you want to do it. You're not holding a bunch of capacity to do this highly scaled, highly parallel data processing. Lambda is great for that. And that's really why, why we built EFS. Yeah, no, and I, I love um, I love the idea of EFS because it does, it opens up so many more use cases, right? Like that was the common complaint um, with serverless was always like, well, you can't do, um, you know, you can't do machine learning with it or something like that, right? And then, and this is just one of those things where it gets us much closer to being able to do those sort of things, right? Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to talk about New Relic. I know, when it comes to things like observability and tracing, you're probably thinking I should talk about Datadog, Prometheus, or even OpenTelemetry. And a month ago, I would have totally agreed with you. But New Relic did something a little out there. They literally reworked everything. They've actually been listening when people talk about blind spots, being stuck with a dozen different tools, or getting hit with hidden costs. So first, they went open source, making it so that you can actually instrument whatever you need. Then they made it so you can monitor your whole entire stack in one place, including your serverless workloads. You can use telemetry data from any source for ridiculously cheap, and there's just one UI with all the tools you need. Plus, they completely changed their pricing to a consumption-based model so you can easily predict your bill. Now, I love this pricing model because it scales as my cloud applications scale, just like with serverless. And best of all, there's a perpetual free tier with one user and 100 gigabytes per month totally free. You can try it and make sure it works for you before it costs you anything. So if you want observability made simple, New Relic is definitely worth another look. Check out their new platform at newrelic.com. All right, so another thing that is a, a launch or a feature that I think is absolutely amazing, and I think it was um, last year at reInvent, um, was uh, Lambda Destinations, right? Uh, and I love, 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 love this feature because I have so many workloads where you have some background processing happening, um, and when the process is finished, you want to you know, tell somebody or tell something that that process um, has completed. So rather than putting all of that code in there and having to call a separate service and do all that other work, um, it's just so much easier for you to say, oh, when this is done and this completes successfully, fire something off to EventBridge or to SNS or put something in a queue. Um, or if there's an error, you get all that extra context inf- uh, context information. So I really, really love this service. Um, I would also love if maybe there was a synchronous version of it as well, so I didn't have to write code. Uh, maybe at the end of a function, um, I could send some data off somewhere else too, but maybe that's a, maybe that's a different discussion. Um, but I think what this opens up is this idea of, um, and maybe uh, I should say maybe 
confuses people a little bit is this idea of function composition, right? And so this is when we want to have one function end and send information to another function and so forth. Um, and obviously there's two different ways to do this, right? We can do choreography. We could use something like event bridge and coordinate them or SNS and coordinate the results of functions. Um, but we could also use orchestration and use a state machine like step functions. So I love that you now have all these different options and I love what you can do with, with Lambda destinations. But what are the what are the use cases for that? Are we talking about just sort of small um, small workflows, and then more complex workflows use something like step functions? Or what sort of the what, what was the intent of um, of of building Lambda destinations? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. Um, when we built destinations, it's really designed so that you you know you used to just hit an asynchronous event and and you would fire and forget it and you wouldn't know uh, really how it continued or be able to pick it up. And we built the destinations in order to allow people to do kind of those completions, uh, those continuations. But in terms of if you get to those really complex use cases of, hey, do this, then that, and all this kind of logic and branching and things like that, then um, step functions is a great way to go because it's really designed more for kind of those complex workflow um, situations and, and you know, is, is probably going to be an easier uh, use case for, for that. Right. Yeah. No. And I and I love step functions. I mean, I think that uh, you know the way that you can do parallelization and that you can fan out and you can fan stuff back in and you've got all the wait timers and things like that. I mean, it's just a a very very good solution. Um. But but back to the destination thing though. So one of the things that's really great about them is again the reduction of my code. Right. Because every time I write code, um, you know, I'm introducing some liability into the system. So if I can just finish something and the output of that. Um, automatically gets sent and sort of guaranteed to go to some of these um, services, that's really great from an asynchronous standpoint. But from a synchronous standpoint, I would love to have that too. So I don't know if that's something you guys are thinking about um, or is something that you would potentially put in, but I, I, I really do like the synchronous use case. We haven't seen a lot of requests for that use case. All right, well, I it, I would like you to add it. Put it that's on my AWS wish list. Okay, I've got, I've got, I've got it in the intake. Awesome. All right. Um, all right. So I want to move on to serverless architecture in general um, and maybe just application architecture in general, um, not only how AWS does it, but how other people um, uh, should be doing it. So we know that there's a lot of isolation with with Lambda functions, right? And with Firecracker, I mean, you know, so um, you're you're pretty good from a blast radius when you build single purpose functions. Um, and, and of course, there's, you know, the microservice pattern um, or microservice designs where you put a couple of Lambda functions together into a single cloud formation stack and things like that. Uh, but I'm curious, uh, how does AWS add additional security or build bulkheads? Is that something you do in a single account or do you have multiple accounts or a separate account for each microservice? Yes. Yeah, so we recommend using a separate account per microservice and then also thinking about an account for each of your environments as well, your pre-production environment and your prod right. environment. Uh, each, each one should have its own account as well. And what that does for you, if you think about it, a lot of times uh, two pizza teams own a service or a small set of microservices and you want to reduce the number of people who can actually access um, those services and make changes. I mean, it's, right. it's an operational risk. It's also a security risk having too many people have their hands on a microservice. You really want to make sure that the people who can access it 
um, are knowledgeable and know what they're doing. And that will help you have a high availability as well as ensuring uh, security. And, and, you know, of course, availability comes back to um, not only some, you know, potential for someone to make a change that is, is a breaking change, but also things like uh, ensuring that your limits are used in a way that and planned for in a way that makes sense for you. Right. Yeah. No, and I, I love that. And I'm, I'm glad that we've cleared that up. So you've heard it here. Uh, AWS separate um, microservice or separate account per microservice. Um, but I do love the idea of microservices. And I love that you have um, all of that isolation, even another level of isolation. And you have the ability to you know set the limits, um, your concurrency limits and all that stuff can all be set per microservice. Yeah. And I really like it, too. Um, you know, hopefully everyone who has a business, that business is growing, you're scaling your service. I know we're scaling our service all the time. You build new features, you right. break apart services into to smaller units um, to help scale with your teams. And as you do that, if you've thought about it as microservices with account permissions, then it also makes it easier for you to transition service ownership over time and have a new team pick it up with, um, you know, with, with just that group having access. So it kind of fuels you for growth as well. Right. Yeah. No. And I love that. I, I absolutely love that idea of breaking things up um, because you also have all this extra control over things like concurrency. Um, you have, uh, you know, you can control all those those uh, those different things. Those different limits are controlled per group. And then the other thing that is great about that too is um, each individual account is going to have its own roll up of billing, right? So then, um, you know, so you can actually see what the cost is, um, you know, per microservice, which is, uh, is pretty interesting. Right. Your, your ownership as well, right? Like right. when you, when you go, want to go to your teams and say, why, why is this being billed to me this much? It's really easy to go and tease that apart and talk to the right team member and get the right answers rather than kind of charging around a, a very large organization, to try to figure it out. Right. Right. Um, all right. So awesome. Uh, so the other thing that I'd love to talk about is this idea of sort of what are the next workloads that, um, you know, that Lambda is going to be able to handle. So um, if we think about, you know, machine learning, so there's, you know, uh, EFS handles some of that, but there's a lot, uh, there's a lot further to go um, in order to handle that type of use case. Um, and, you know, maybe support for other legacy databases, um, maybe even just like larger memory, for example. So like, what, what are some of these new use cases that we're hoping to unlock? Yeah, so we're looking um, and continue to look at different types of compute as well as um, larger uh, memory sizes. And of course, uh, larger memory, uh, because the way we, we do kind of the me memory and CPU mm -hmm. kind of go hand in hand. So larger memory also implies more cores. So uh, again, it's kind of back to that big data, more right. uh, compute intensive uh, workloads that we know um, can can be unlocked by by bringing more more memory and more CPUs uh, to customers' uh, specific use cases. And then um, the one thing that I know we we get asked for and and it's uh, increased uh, duration. But uh, one of the things and, and and you know 15 minutes is it right? Is it is it could it could it go further? It could probably go further. Uh, but one of the the secondary considerations is you we want to cycle our uh, our, you know, customers' execution environments. And the reason why we want to cycle those execution environments is because that helps with security. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want something really that runs indefinitely. You want it to be bounded in time. 
because then you know that you're getting that that cycling of the environment, which then no, you know that you have a clean environment and, and that that your your uh, workloads are safe and secure. So right. Um, right. yeah, so the, so those things come it come come kind of hand in hand. You want to cycle. Um, how long? How how often do you want to cycle? Um, and the longer you go, uh, you know, you don't want it to be indefinite. Yeah. No. Right. No. I definitely agree. I mean, I, I think 15 minutes is. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit arbitrary, but it's a good number. I mean, you know, maybe 30 minutes would be better or, or for some workloads or whatever. Um, but certainly that's one of the things I love so much about Lambda is the statelessness of it, right? And so the longer that uh, container runs, um, the more, you know, the more potential there are for everything, memory leaks, security issues or whatever, um, you know, even if you've got, you know, variables saved in your global scope and things like that. So, um, so you yeah, know, I, I mean, but maybe bumping it up a little bit, I don't know, that that might work. Hey everyone, I want to thank our sponsor Epsigon and tell you about their applied observability platform for modern applications, which supports both serverless and containers. Epsigon delivers an auto-instrumented trace-centric APM that automatically correlates traces, logs, and metrics that helps your teams reduce mean time to discovery, mean time to repair, and application downtime. And if you're running microservices, you can't effectively visualize traces without some sort of automation. Now, complexity of data in modern applications is growing faster than the ability to manage that change. When using serverless or containers, traditional monitoring tools do not deploy or scale well, leading to limited visibility, which means engineering teams spend a significant amount of time troubleshooting and resolving issues. This decreases the time spent on building new apps and adding functionality to keep up with the competition. If you're building modern applications, ditch the legacy APM solutions that scale poorly, create more overhead, and won't give you the visibility you need into your microservices. Instead, go to epsigon.com slash serverless chats and sign up for an Epsigon account. Try it for free for 14 days, connect your first trace, and even get a cloud observability drone. Once again, that's epsigon.com slash serverless chats. What about GPUs? Have you heard any uh, anybody asking for GPUs? Yeah, I think um, that that was uh, that was when I, I I didn't talk as much about um, uh, the potential for GPU, but we certainly hear from customers and interest, and and we we are evaluating that as well. Awesome. Um, all right, so here's something that is sort of ties back to the vision, maybe, and or the vision, and and maybe this is the AWS vision, maybe this is your vision, um, but. <laughs> Are we ever going to get to a point where um, like a hundred percent of our compute is serverless? Um, you know, you know, like where we're just no need for containers. Um, you know, sub millisecond cold starts. Uh, maybe we have like some sort of coordinated parallel compute where um, you know lambda function can talk to one another. Um, but you know, maybe just from the the the, the lambda perspective, is that? Um, you know, is that your goal? Is is it to is sort of to I guess take over the compute um, world with with serverless compute? So from a Lambda perspective, we're going to continue to work to remove limits and allow customers to bring more and more uh, workloads to Lambda and to serverless because we think it has such value. But in terms of uh, will we get to a hundred percent? I think uh, no one knows, and only time will tell. So, but, but from a, you know, from a Lambda perspective, we're going to do everything we can to continue to, to make it a great platform for customers and to remove uh, things that get in the way of, of that for them. 
Right. Yeah. No, and that, and I mean, for me personally, I would love it if I never had to manage another container or a server ever again and every, uh, you know, every use case was sort of solved. Um, but I think one of the big ones that comes up is the idea of cold starts. Um, and you look at a couple of other platforms that exist, um, you know, and again, they might be limited in terms of their language support and things like that. But some of them have, you know, maybe they run on like the V8 platform or something, have very, 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 very mm -hmm. low cold starts. Um, so this is obviously a continued complaint. I mean, I know we've got provision concurrency, but is that something where, you know, AWS is going to continue to keep pushing and pushing and get that cold start down to where it's, you know, uh, practically doesn't exist? We're going to continue to drive down our, our uh, steady state case of cold starts. Mm -hmm. So we absolutely continue to work on that. Um, and we put a lot of focus into both our warm and cold latency to make our services as fast as possible. We put provision concurrency there to address customers' immediate need because we know it takes right. a little bit more time to and some, some real heavy engineering lifting to, uh, to address it uh, without that. But um, over time, I, those, those will get uh, closer and closer to uh, parity. Awesome. Um, all right, so I want to talk about this idea of the Lambda supercomputer. So I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, with Tim Wagner. Uh, obviously, you worked with him. Um, but in terms of um, this idea of Lambda functions that can run in parallel, and can talk to one another. And I think the way that, that Tim was doing it um, with, with his test project was this idea of doing like uh, NAT punching and, and having them being, being able to co uh, coordinate with one another. Um, and this could, could open up a lot of use cases, um, you know, especially for big data, for genomics or uh, anything big like that. So are you thinking about making a way for Lambda functions to potentially sort of mesh together and, um, and, and do this sort of supercomputer use case? Yeah. So it's certainly a interesting use case. And it's something that I think Lambda is well uh, situated for, especially if you think about it from the standpoint of all the concurrency and bursts that you can spin up. So you can you can spin up a, a lot of different nodes. And then, you know, just based on routing the messages in the right way, uh, end up with kind of this large scale um, compute environment. So I certainly think it is uh, is a possibility. It's a po it's it's certainly something that that Lambda could do. Right. Yeah. No. And I mean, and, and Lambda obviously you can use you know fan out patterns and some of these other things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even step functions to coordinate and do you know parallel um, compute. But I, I do think it would be really interesting if there was a way for Lambda functions to directly talk to one another. Um, you know, there I think that would open up some really interesting use cases. Um, all right, so another thing I want to talk about is, I guess, this idea of complexity in serverless, right? So uh, there are a lot of building blocks, right? So Lambda is just one small piece of it. And if you're just building a small application and maybe you're just using Lambda and API Gateway uh, and, and maybe DynamoDB, and that's relatively simple. You can put it all into one CloudFormation template or you're using SAM or something like that. Um, and that's relatively easy. But then you start integrating EFS and then you get, you know, you need an SQSQ or maybe you're reading off of a Kinesis stream or you're using EventBridge or you've now got 15 different microservices all separated into different accounts. Um, it, it gets really difficult to kind of wrap your head around the, the complexity that's there. So I'm wondering, and I know that, you know, like there's, there's open source things for Terraform and there's the CDK and obviously SAM and some of these things, but 
is there something where, you know, maybe the Lambda team or AWS in general is looking at, you know, like another level of abstraction, like, it, it, you know, and I know you've got SAR and some other ways that you can kind of package up some use cases, but is there something on the roadmap for for like what that next level of abstraction is to make it you know easier for companies to come in and adopt best practices and, and things like that? Um, you know, like what's what's the what's the vision around that? Yeah. So the so Sam, which you referenced, is intended to be kind of that that next higher level abstraction for building serverless applications. And uh, we launch every new feature with Sam Sam support. For instance, EFS just launched and we wouldn't launch it without having that support. And we also are big believers in the um, the broader tooling ecosystem. And the reason why we believe in that is we don't want customers to have to learn yet another tool chain if they have a tool chain that they love. And so we support um, right. kind of meeting customers where they are with uh, the tool chains that they find um, most comfortable with. And so that that's, that's kind of a dual strategy. We build SAM as the top level abstraction uh, for serverless, and then we support a variety of uh, th third-party tools as well, so that customers can can use those. Yeah, no, and I think the support for third-party tools is great. I know with observability, there's a whole bunch of tools that are there um, that can help you. But I mean, just from an adoption standpoint, right? Like as you add complexity, and again, it's going to get more complex over time. That's just how these things sort of work. Um, but is that something that you know potentially is going to hurt adoption um, if it just becomes harder and harder to kind of integrate, um, you know, integrate these services into your existing tool chains or into your existing sort of workflows? Um, like, I mean, even like testing, for example, like you, it's very, very hard to test um, locally. Um, you have to test in the cloud. So, like, what what's the what's the vision there to to just bring it closer to developers? Yeah. I, and and to that to that point, um, we are continuing to invest and have a real focus on uh, the developer tooling and the developer experience. Like we know that that's an important element of serverless. You know, it's not just having it run great on your data plane, right? right. It's also it's also how are you interacting? What's the what's the tooling? What's the customer experience? And then you know how how do you how do you operate uh, it in and out with as a as an engineer? So. And it's nice, um, you know, kind of being an engineer, working with a lot of engineers, we and then um, kind of going back to the uh, and adopting it ourselves. Right. We we see where we can improve as well, even firsthand. Yeah, no, and I think that's super important from an adoption standpoint. It's just I know a lot of developers have a hard time trying to do the testing and wrap their head around like all these different changes and stuff. So, um, or just the different way that some of this stuff works. Uh, all right, so I'd love to ask you this question too. So I, I, I tend to ask a lot of my guests, like where do you see serverless going in uh, five years or where do you think serverless will be in five years? You actually have a lot of control over this. Um, so like where, uh, where would you like to see things go? Well, where I would like to see things go, and kind of going back to um, our earlier conversation on why why not serverless, I would love I would love to see um, you know the industry uh, be be running on serverless just because I think it brings such a great experience for engineers and you know kind of going back to my experience and you heard twenty five years in the industry or twenty five plus 
you know, I've seen all the phases. I've seen the phases of a technology adoption. I've seen what we've asked in, of our engineers over time. You know, back when I started, it was you you learned a language and you learned it really well and you programmed on it. Then you ended up with Polygot and you ended up with, you're no longer on a box, you're driving a whole bunch of microservices and coordinating them together. And then, you know, testing, you used to have a test team who would test and now then te you're, you became the test team um, as well. Yeah, like all this stuff is good, but we've asked engineers to do more and more and more right. and more. And so I like that with serverless, we are actually asking them to do less and to focus on the stuff that's really value added. And so I think that's a positive um, outcome for engineers. And so when I think about it from, you know, as a in long-term engineering leader, you know, driving the most agility out of my teams, um, I think that 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 serverless, uh, and I hope to see where serverless is, it's a, it's a why not. Right, yeah, totally agree. Uh, awesome, all right, well, well, Holly, thank you so much for being here. Um, I know that um, I know that you've successfully managed to avoid social media, um, which is amazing, so you're not on Twitter, but uh, if, if people wanna get a hold of you, how do they do that? Yeah, they can they can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm really easy to find. There are not that many Holly Mesrobians in the world. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. And then also the two um, under the hood of AWS Lambda from reInvent 2018-2019. I will put those in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here, Holly. Great. Thank you. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Holly Mesrobian for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, New Relic and Epsigon. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 65. For more serverless chats, subscribe, become an insider, check us out on YouTube, and make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off By None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.